Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Stand with me, will you, and turn to Matthew 13. We're going to look together at verses 1 through 23 again. This parable that Jesus told in the midst of a series of parables about the kingdom of God. The parable he told, and then he told more, and then he explained them. And this is the parable, the first of them, that we're spending several weeks on. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. It's quite a scene. A boat and a crowd on a beach. Thousands upon thousands. And Jesus out on the water, amplifying his voice, the water having that effect. He spoke to them many things in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them. Others fell on the rocky places where they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out, and others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. The disciples came to him and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been granted, for whoever has, to him more shall be given. He will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see and while hearing they do not hear nor do they understand. In their case the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled which says you will keep on hearing but will not understand. You will keep on seeing but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown in the rocky places, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. The worry of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Dear Heavenly Father, this is your word. And, and we are reading your word as, it's, as it speaks about itself. 
And so, Father, I pray that we may, in this, in this hall of mirrors, come to understand the truth that radiates back from your word, about your word, back and forth, that it may enter our hearts and that we may not just be outside observers, but that we may stand in the midst of the word and that this word may not be mere words of men, but it may, Father, have power, bring conviction and work by the spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You understand that this parable is told to the disciples in the midst of a large crowd, but not for the sake of the large crowd. Somewhat, perhaps, for the sake of the large crowd. Primarily for the disciples, those who understand. Jesus is very clear that many, if not most, of those who listen to him speak this parable and the ensuing parables that follow will not understand. They will not know what is being said. It will not penetrate their hearts. They have, they have hearts that can't hear it. You understand that the soil is the heart. That the soil is what receives the seed of the word. And that is in the first instance and in the following. Jesus says it's a heart. And the first heart is hard. The second heart is soft in a way. But it doesn't remain soft. Now, this parable is told to people who will understand. And therefore, it's not primarily told to the first soil, the hard heart. It's not told primarily to the second soil, the rocky ground. It's not even told to the third soil, the soil that has the weeds, because even that soil does not grasp what is being said. This parable is told for the fourth soil, the good soil, that receives the word where the word grows up. And I don't know if if you are the first or the second or the third or the fourth of these soils, God alone knows. It is clear, as Jesus tells this parable, that it's a parable about his kingdom, that all of the soils receive the word. And so all of these soils, we, we must conclude, are represented here this morning. There are some of each in our midst. There is the rocky ground. There is the path the hard ground, there is the, the weed-infested soil, and there's the good soil. But I'm speaking primarily to those who understand this morning, because that's who Jesus is speaking to. Not that this is not a challenge to others, and not that it may not bear fruit in some lives which right now look like bad soil. But in reality, this is something Jesus tells his disciples and explains to his disciples and he expects them to understand it and others not to. And he's very clear about that. He doesn't mince words and says, some will hear and never hear. Some will see and never perceive. Some will never have it penetrate them. And that's true this morning as much as it was on the day that Jesus originally spoke it. Some will hear and others won't. But this message, this parable, is for those who do hear. It's given to those who have a heart that receives. Now, why do you need it? Why do you need to be told these things? Because you need to understand the progress of the kingdom of God. Because as citizens of this kingdom, as those in whom the seed has germinated and is bringing forth a crop, if this is you, I praise God for it, as good seed, good soil, 
you need to understand what surrounds you. And the process that you see around you of soil rejecting the seed. So that you are not in despair. So that you are not looking at God and saying, God, you don't have power. So that you are responding faithfully. This is the parable that Jesus tells for you. He's speaking to you. The soil that we focus on this morning is the soil that's the rocky ground and it's the hardest one to speak about because it's such a surprise. Because it jumps out of, <laughs> it jumps out of nowhere and goes boo in your face. And you go, what? I've, I've spent my life as a pastor thinking about this soil, worrying about this soil, seeing the, it's the soil that makes you as a pastor want to quit. It makes you want to quit pastoring in your 20s. It makes you want to do, quit in your 30s. It makes you want to quit in your 40s and your 50s. And it still makes you want to quit in your 60s because you look and you think you see the growth of the kingdom. You think you see the word brought into a life. You look and you say, praise God. And six months later, you look and you say, what happened? It's like a submarine attack out of the blue. You're moving along. Everything seems just great. <laughs> and then, bang, the torpedo. And the life is blown up. And everything is in, in shatters and dismay and despair. And you go, whoa, I didn't see that coming. I can put many, many names to this type of soil. I can name names. The very first time that Cheryl and I tried to do something, we were wanting to plant a church in Illinois. Thought that, that was before we moved to Toledo, back in 1988. Thought, okay, we'll start a Bible study in the neighborhood I grew up in, invite people, see what happens. And uh, we visited people, invited them to Bible study, and this dear young couple with a couple of young children, they said, yeah, we want to come. We want to learn about God. And they came to that Bible study, and they grew, and they grew, and it was wonderful. For six months, they grew. They were on fire, and then, bang, it was over. And Ral and Diane stopped coming. And one year after they had received the word with joy, one year after it looked like it was transforming their lives, one year after the, the great power of God seemed to be working in them, Cheryl and I moved to Toledo, and we were already six months past Ral and Diane being part of our lives and attending the study, and they were well on their way towards a divorce that happened shortly after we moved to Toledo. One, they say, is the loneliest number, and rocky ground is the saddest ground. It is the heartbreaking ground. One is going home expecting a party and opening the door and finding a funeral. This soil is especially cursed with a lack of self-awareness. This soil doesn't know what it is at all. This soil thinks it's tasted everything there is to taste and then it turns its back on it. It just doesn't understand. I think... You, you put it in the lineup of the soils, the first soil understands that it's got a hard heart and it's just rejecting. The, the weed-infested ground understands that they've lost their first love, but this soil, they don't get it. 
So we have a, a, a parable about a seed being grown, sown and growing. And initially Jesus says it's filled with joy. Immediately receives the, the word with joy. Immediately receives it with joy. And it grows and it thrives and it, it jumps up and it looks like it has vitality and strength. And there may be signs of what's about to happen, small signs, almost imperceptible signs. Usually there is some. There is an indication that this may be happening because every life that comes to, to Christ must taste persecution and must taste trouble. And when these lives hit persecution and trouble, they don't bounce back. So the lack of root in the faith that ultimately leads this, this soil's plant to wither is invisible until persecution arrives, until affliction arrives. And the only way you can tell this is happening in a life is what initially appears just to be a slight backing off from the word of God, a slight retreat from the life of joyful obedience. But that slight backing off and that initial small retreat quickly turns into a total rout. Satan just puts this person to flight and they run. So it's not my goal, as I said, to call this soil to self-awareness this morning. Because if you're this soil, you're either past the point and you've said, I'm on and you're about to be out of here. Or you don't know it yet. You're in the first flush of joy. Nothing indicates the sadness that lies ahead. It's around the corner. Invisible to you and to us. And so I speak instead to all of you who are the good seed. Those to whom Jesus initially addressed this parable. The good seed. The people who are growing. Those who sow the word of God. Those who bear fruit. Those who have revealed themselves by their reception of the word and the fruit that comes from them to be good soil. And I call on you and I speak to you who are sowers of God's word about this soil so that you will sow as you go out in life, so that you will go out in life as a sower in recognition that there is this soil, that it does exist, that it will behave exactly as Jesus has described it, and so that you do not sow to this soil in a way that seeks to undo what is inevitable, all right? Now you say, Wait a second, what do you mean, David? Don't sow in a way that will seek to undo what is inevitable. Well, I want to say the first thing we've got to see here in this parable, the first point that Jesus makes in this parable is a negative, a negative point. The sower sows the seed, and what else does he do? He sows the seed. In other words, the sower, if you're a parent this morning, you're a sower in the life of your child. You sow the seed. You speak about the word of God. And if you're a faithful sower, you're going to speak it to yourself as well. And you're not going to be a person who tells people to give up everything from the, uh, in your life. You know, all the, all the worldliness in your life, as some preachers do, from the door of your Gulf Stream 6. Okay? In other words, you don't live as a Pharisee. You, you, you sow in your own life. You listen to the word yourself. But then you speak to your kids. And what else do you do? 
Well, ultimately, according to the parable, all you can do is speak the word. You've got to sow faithfully. You have to sow it in your own life so you're not a hypocrite, right? We understand that hypocrisy dooms those who hear it. The preacher's a hypocrite. The Pharisees were making people who are twice the sons of hell that they were because they were hypocrites. They were teaching something they didn't practice. But in the end, in the end, the soil produces crops by itself with the seed and it needs nothing further than the seed from the sower. The sower sows and then he moves on. And the seed either grows or it doesn't. The seed produces crops by itself. Now you understand, don't you, that soil is essential to crops. But that soil has been sown when a crop appears. It has been seeded. It is the soil and the seed. The soil pregnant with seed does it the sower's job is to sow and you want to think you can do more and you want to tell yourself you can go beyond your job of sowing but your job is to sow the word in your life and to sow it in other lives and to leave the increase and the growth to the seed you sow you sow you sow, you seed, you seed, you seed, and then you pray and you ask God to allow the soil to produce. Of course, today, sophisticated sowers think they know more about how it happens than in the day of Jesus. It's not the seed that does it. It's the, the sower and his will and his knowledge. And so today, we have sowers and farms who think that they have a knowledge of horticulture and agronomy that allows them to sow successfully. They have a greater sophistication than the farmer of centuries ago. They know things that the farmers of Jesus' day did not know. They know about chlorophyll. They know about photosynthesis. They know about the seed and its seed coat, the embryonic seed. They know the reasons why the seed needs sunlight why it needs hydrogen and heat. The sower today has a much more sophisticated understanding and in his knowledge, he comes to think that he himself is vital to the process beyond just sowing. But though the sower, the farmer, knows the processes, though he has the latest and best equipped GPS-driven tractor which modulates the seed and the fertilizer and the pesticide to the the areas of the farm, according to what they need, it's so granular, it can get down to a quarter acre and, and treat it differently than all the rest. I mean, it is sophisticated. In the end, the growth of the seed comes from God. And if God decides to send a flood, all the drainage ditches and all the drainage tiles in the world will not keep that field from flooding. And if God decides to send a drought, all the irrigation in the world and all the GMO grain types that are resistant to drought in the world will not grow. 
All the knowledge we've gained over the centuries does nothing to withstand the floods or the droughts or the insects or other enemies. Today, most farmers have an understanding of it. It's one of the reasons that farmers have a certain native nobility spiritually that's denied to the guy who works in the factory because they understand that in the end, they're dependent on something bigger than themselves. If they're a Christian, they understand it's God and the providence of God. And if they're not, they call it Mother Nature. But they understand there are certain things they can't do. Farmer puts the seed in the ground. He does his best. He broadcasts the seed. He fertilizes it. And then he goes to bed and to sleep. And he rises and he goes about his day. And all the time he waits. And what is he waiting on? He's waiting on the God of rain and sun to provide for the seed to grow. He's waiting on the sovereign God of nature to work to make the soil accept the seed. On the sovereign God of the soil and the seed. And this is how it is with the word of God. The propagator, the sower, the inseminator, the broadcaster, the father, the mother, the Sunday school teacher, the street evangelist, the one who witnesses at work, the Christian teacher, the Christian coach, the Christian grandparents, they speak the word and it falls and they don't know how it works or where it's going to work. They don't know because they're not in control. They don't determine it. And that is Jesus' point. This sower has a single power, and that is to broadcast the seed. The role of the sower is to speak the truth of God and then wait for God. And God, if he is rewarding that sower, causes an absolute marvel to take place life now any type of life from sowing to the soils throwing seed from the ground is marvelous it's it's incredible you think about it and you have a tiny seed and it's thrown in the ground in the dirt what good can come from that you don't throw precious things in the dirt and yet it yields a crop this kind of thing is far beyond us you need a new car. You don't go and, and take your old car and bury it in the ground and expect a car tree to come up, do you? You'd go, huh? But this is how God works. He takes a seed, something powerful and glorious and tiny, and we throw it in the ground and we put it in the midst of dirt, and the thing takes on a life of its own out of dirt, out of soil, left alone. This is the word of God. The word is the seed. The power is not you. You have the privilege of sowing the seed, of propagating it by speaking God's word. An immense privilege. In fact, it's the greatest privilege you can ever have to be a speaker of God's word. There is nothing that is more attuned to the powers of heaven than speaking God's word to others. Nothing. But it's not in you to make it fruitful. You can't do it and I can't. And if you've ever been a part of this process, you know how wonderful it is to be a part of. First man I ever knew to respond to my preaching in a way that was good seed was an 80-year-old man. 
And I didn't have any idea what was happening. It was an old man whose, whose son came to the church and asked me to visit him, so I did. I visited him in his house where he was taking care of his wife with Alzheimer's. 80 years old, and he cared for her in an amazing way. And then she fell and, and broke her hip, and he cared for her in the nursing home. I'd, I'd go and I'd talk to him, and he'd ask me a few questions. He's a very quiet, taciturn man, ex-school teacher, and he'd ask me a few questions, and I'd answer. And then he'd talk to me about what book he was reading. And he'd always have a book as he sat by her bedside. So I had visited him for six months, eight months, probably once every week, once every two weeks at his house, then at the nursing home. One day at the nursing home, I'll never forget it, out of the blue, he said to me, David, do you think I should be baptized? Now, I knew that this man had gone to a Methodist church in his 50s, 30-some years before, and that he'd responded to an altar call and then had dropped away, had looked like this kind of soil. And I said, oh no, I don't think you need to do that because I thought by by encouraging him to be baptized, I'd be encouraging him to think that like the altar call, this would make him a Christian. And so I said, no, Mr. Stilson, no, you don't need to do that. I mean, I said, you know, he'd already been baptized. And I left and a week later I was visiting him again there and he asked me, he said to me, David, I don't. I wonder why you don't want me to be baptized. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I don't want you to be baptized because I don't think it means anything more than you're going to the altar did 30 years ago. I thought he's just saying this because he's happy this 29-year-old preacher is here visiting him. And I said, I said, nah, I'm not saying you shouldn't. And he looked at me and he said, He said, David, I thought you said two weeks ago that if we have repented, we should be baptized. Shouldn't I be baptized? Now listen, this is a humbling reality. I don't give the word power. You don't give the word power. The word has power. I don't make it bear fruit. You don't make it bear fruit. It bears fruit. I'm not the power behind it. You're not the power behind it. It is the power. The word itself. The word was with God and the word was God. When you sow the word, you're actually taking Jesus and distributing. You're giving him out. And in that kind of a comparison, you understand you're nothing. When you understand that it's Jesus in you, you don't think you're the power, do you? Now, why does so much seed seem to fail? Why is it that it grows and then it falls away? Well, Jesus is candid about the reason. Rocky soil does not bring about a good plant, though the word is initially received with joy and grows. But then verse 21, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately 
he falls away. Did you catch what Jesus said is the cause of the person falling, falling away? The person falls away because the word brings affliction and persecution. And so the word that brought him to life becomes the cause of his death. Because the word demands something. And the person's not willing to do it when they see the cost of it. And so they leave. They run away. Initially, the word brings joy and happiness and growth. And, and at first, all is growth and joy. You've seen this. There's power. There's victory. New friendships. The person becomes part of the family of the church. Old sins seem to be vanquished. Life is full of hope. But then, and this is a thing you need to understand as a sower, the very same word that brought about the joy and the life, this word becomes the problem. And it produces a decline because it still demands obedience. It still requires that you follow it. And this person is thinking, I'm through the door. I'm home free. I've made it. And the word says, no, you must still obey me. And so the church in America has done over the last several centuries what the church always does when it comes face to face with this reality that following the word for a lifetime is painful and brings persecution and affliction. Why does it bring persecution and affliction? It brings persecution because you're now following Jesus and your family doesn't like it. And they yell at you. And when you obey and you do things that your family thinks is crazy because of your newfound faith, they go, oh, you're stupid. And you pay the price of obedience. Perhaps it's that you're not working as a woman, making your 100000 a year, but you're home raising children. And it's an affliction. And you say, whoa, this is hard. And the word is requiring things like this of you because the word requires that we live for heaven. Your husband may resent your new focus on God if he's not a believer. Persecution. Affliction. God expects obedience. And so the church says, you know what? We don't think it's so important. God really doesn't want you paying a price. It's all good, you know? When you come to Jesus, it's all good. It's all good. There's nothing bad about it. That's a lie. It's all good. But like all really good things, it carries a lot in its train. And that lot is turning from this world to heaven, putting behind you the desires of this life, and obeying God. So the church in America has found a thousand ways to say you don't need to pay that price of obedience to God. When I was a kid, teens, young man in my region of Chicago started 
a youth group that grew and grew and grew. Eventually the church that it was held in said, hey, you know, you've gotten too big and you don't seem to be really part of our life. And so why don't you go and do this as an independent ministry? And he did. He took his youth group and made it an independent ministry. But he was getting older and running a big youth group was, was probably not entirely satisfying. And he kept thinking we could do a church like this and we'd have the same success we're having with our youth group. And so he went out and started a church. He gathered his group of leaders and he said, this isn't going to be a youth group anymore. It's going to be a church. But then he did something that, that uh, became the mantra of churches across America for the next 40 years. He went out and he went to the people in those western, northwestern suburbs of Chicago where this thing was located, the wealthy area, and he went door to door. He says he did. I don't doubt that he did. He went door to door to people he called Unchurch Harry and Sally and he said, tell me why you don't go to church. What do you not like? And he took a list. And then he set up his church to avoid precisely the things that he was told by the people that they disliked. Now, I, I think any time a pastor says, I'm going to do a poll, you'd better, you better start watching your silverware because he's going to steal it. Any time a pastor says, I'm going to do a poll, what he's actually trying to do is to give cover to something he really wants to do. He knows exactly what he wants. He just wants to have something he can point to as the reason for doing it. And so this man started a church that he called a seeker-sensitive church. And they sought to avoid all the things that he thought were keeping people from coming to his church. So the, the sermons were practical. There is a huge emphasis on self-help, on things that will help you. They would hold leadership seminars and they'd bring in Bill Clinton to speak on leadership, as though Bill Clinton can teach the Christian leader anything about leadership. They reserved Bible teaching for Thursday nights. They did away with offerings. They say people don't like being asked to give. They stopped having congregational song, the professionals on stage, because people like to come to church and watch, but they don't want to have to raise their hands or do things. They, they catered to what he called unchurched Harry and Sally in every way they could. But there was a, a certain lie at the center of that church. And maybe it's, it's hitting you right now. They called the people that they went to and asked, what do you not like about church? Unchurched. Right? But actually... They weren't unchurched people, were they? They were ex-church people. They were people who knew the word of God, who had gone to church and had rejected it and stopped attending. They were this soil. And that church was built around this soil. And it became the mother church to churches across our nation and its primary teaching was you don't have to pay a price. Don't worry about obedience. It's all good. It's all good. Now, we're not a part of that movement. We have friends who are in it. And those movements do lead people to Christ at times. But they don't build strong plants. They don't. But 
we're better than that. We're more sophisticated. And we're not going to say we're just going to do what unchurched Harry and Sally do. What we're going to do, what the reformed world in America, the church, the, the branch of the church we're a part of has done is to say, oh, no, let's be very, very religious in our services. Let's emphasize the word of God. But let's say to the people, because it's true, they say, that faith is all God wants from you. The faith is the only step of obedience that God requires of you. And if you try to go beyond faith into further acts of obedience, well, that's legalism. And that's trying to earn your salvation. And so obedience to God is cast as sin works rather than the very material that makes faith and obedience to God is not sin it is the raw material the stuff of faith you can't have faith without obeying God and that begins with the demand that you believe in him And so the church in America has become a church left and right, top and down, that tries to define obedience and the price of following God out of existence. There are examples of this in the Bible. The children of Israel have left Egypt and they're at the foot of Mount Sinai and God is on top of the mountain. There's thunder and lightning and craziness, storm clouds and Moses is up on top of the mountain receiving the law from God and Aaron and the rest of the people are down below. And the rest of the people grow restless and they say, whoa, this God is a hard God. This God is a scary God. Give us a God. Give us a God, Aaron, that we can, that we can feel at ease with. Give us a God that is less dramatic, less demanding. And so Aaron says, okay, give me your gold. And he goes and he carves a golden calf, which is meant to be a portrayal of the God who led them out, but an easier one. Not the God on top of the mountains, storms and thunder and lightning, but a nice golden calf, something that we can wrap our minds around. That's a figure of God. Ah, I like that. And so he gives them what they want, an easy God. And at the very outset, curses the people. The very outset of the Exodus. Look, Jesus had people come to him. They loved his word. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He's afraid. He's a Pharisee. He doesn't want others to know he's coming to Jesus. He knows there's something in Jesus. And he comes. Jesus doesn't say, oh, it's easy. It's fine. You're, yeah, you're already there because you've come to me at night. He says, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that man goes, what? Rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Says, I want to follow you. I want to have eternal life. What do I have to do? Jesus says, follow the commandments. The rich young ruler says, I've done all that. So Jesus then looks at him and it says, loving him, said to him, okay, you lack one thing. 
Go and sell everything you have and give everything you get from the sale of your goods to the poor and then come and follow me and you will have eternal life. That guy loved the word until the word hit him. And when that word hit him, he left sad because the Bible says he had great wealth. You know what Jesus didn't do? Jesus didn't run after him and say, oh, you don't get it. I meant it just spiritually. You, you misunderstood. Come back, come back, Jesus. Let him go. And the crowds that followed Jesus, thousands and tens of thousands, and then Jesus preaches to them and says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. You cannot receive the kingdom of God. The Bible says many, many fled from him. So many that Jesus said to his 12, are you also going to leave me? He did not run after them and say, come back, come back. He allowed the word to be the word. The Bible is clear. Sow the word of God to your children. Sow the word. Do it day and night. Do it coming and going. Do it when you rise up. Do it when you go to bed. Sow the word. It is what you do. We are to sow the word. Cultivate the word, the fruits from God. Paul writes, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Sow the word. Trust the word in God who is the God of the word. Sow it. Don't make excuses for it. Don't try and make it easier than it is. Trust the word. The word that changed you will accomplish what God wants it to. It will not return void. Sow the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those who have sown the word to us and trusted it. And we thank you that you gave us ears to hear and eyes to see. Father, for those who have not no eyes to see, no ears to hear, we pray that they will be opened. Open eyes this morning. Open hearts. Make hearts soft that are now resistant and rejecting even now your word. Soften them, Father, by your power, by your Holy Spirit. Give us the gift of repentance and obedience, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.